0: I know I'm sad he's leaving, too. So glad you are here to worship with us today. I hope you guys have had the chance to get to know Matt and Hannah Gordon. Hope you get the opportunity to wish him well, pray for him, and the things that they do have prayer requests. Next Sunday, actually after the 9 o'clock service and after the 10.30 service, I have a little open house kind of thing for him out there in the gym. And, uh, and it is it's sad. Uh, it's sad for me. I get to work with him every day, and I love the boy. He's, he's, a, he's a neat young man. And it's one of those things where, you know, real honestly, if somebody... Leave and you didn't miss him. they probably weren't doing the relationship part right. And he was, and so we will miss him. And I remember the, the first time that I heard him speak, he, we trusted him to go deliver the message to our kids at camp. And he came back and he, and he stood up here on the stage. And, and as he was speaking, I thought, I got to get that guy on staff here at the church because he needed a job to be able to buy a comb because he didn't have one. And, uh, and, and he's, he still never bought a comb the entire time he was here. But, but God used him just so mightily. He's got such a neat teaching gift. And so we're just thrilled for them and very, very excited. So I, I hope you have the opportunity to, to wish them well. I'm going to go through the book of Habakkuk in a, kind of a short series over the next few weeks. If, if you missed last week, we did an overview, kind of a, a big picture flyover. If you want to listen to that message, you can go to the website and listen to it. All our messages are there, www.capebiblechapel.org. If you've never been, there's lots of. Neat stuff on the website. Am I seriously giving a commercial for the website? Okay, so so go there and check that out. Pastor Danny's taking a break from that "Write It On Your Heart" series. He'll come back after Habakkuk and finish that series out, and then we'll be ready. And we're going to start in the fall this very very exciting series on discipleship. We are just really really positive that's where the Holy Spirit is leading us is to talk about discipleship, how important it is to obey that command. So today we are going to jump into the first chapter of Habakkuk, and if you would just turn with me there in your Bible might take a little while to find, nestled back there in the Old Testament or surf with me on your Bible app, however you want to get there. If you remember, we talked last week about the theme for the book being living by faith. The key verse in Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4. says this, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. This is designed to be a really practical study. It's really supposed to help the people in Habakkuk's day, help us today to truly live by faith. Even when we don't understand what God is up to. Probably especially when we don't understand what God is up to because that's where the living by faith part comes in. And there's a good reason for us why we won't totally understand what God's doing. Because he's perfect and we're not. We're fallen people. And so it's a condition that we all deal with. It's a word we don't like to hear that much or talk about very much, but there's no way to apologize around it or work our way around it. It's the same problem the folks in Habakkuk's day had. Same problem we have today, same problem everybody since chapter 3 of the Bible has had, and it's sin. And so we need to wrestle with that. We need to get that. We need to understand that sin is a big problem. As we read Habakkuk, as we live our lives every day, sin is what causes all the problems. Now, God is in control. He is sovereign, which is just a big term that means he is the absolute and ultimate authority over all things, over all creation. So God is in control, but he's allowed sin to enter the world. And it's the cause of all our issues, and now it has lots of effects. It's it's the reason we see the things in Habakkuk, violence and injustice and wickedness. It's the reason we see the things we talked about last week that bother us in our personal lives. It's the reason we see the things that bother us in the world all around us. And so through this study, we need to come to an understanding of how we're going to deal with that so that we can live by faith. So let's jump into the text in the book of Habakkuk, and we'll kind of unpack the context and the application as we go. Starts in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. So here right away we see Habakkuk is a prophet. But he's one of God's guys, but there's something different about the way he writes when you compare it to the other prophetic writings. Habakkuk wrote it about the same time as the prophet Jeremiah. But if you read the book of Jeremiah, it's structured totally differently. Jeremiah delivered message after message of very honestly impending doom for the people. He's trying to warn God's people. And then he writes the book of Lamentations, and that's what he's doing. He's lamenting the fact that God's people didn't listen. And so the Babylonians have come and reduced Jerusalem to rubble. And he's sad. He's sad because he's been preaching warnings that no one listens to. Most of the prophets write in that style. They speak against the sins of God's people, and they call them back to God. They call them to repentance and faith. But Habakkuk's not written like that. This short little book doesn't follow the pattern of the other prophetic writings. It's really a dialogue. If you read it, I hope you read it this last week, it reads like journal entries. It kind of reads like a diary. It's the story of a man and his relationship with God. So it's not God speaking to man through a man like the other prophets. It's dialogue. Other prophets declare God's message to people. Habakkuk dialogues with God about people. You jump back to the text in verse 2. Habakkuk begins this series of questions he has for God. He starts out, How long, O Lord... Will I call for help, and you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. He says, why do you make me look and see iniquity? Cause me to look on wickedness. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Imagine this scene just for a second. What if you went one day this week to the park? You're gonna go eat lunch and you go to a park, some park in the area, and you get there and you walk by, there's a policeman. And the policeman's there, and he's eating lunch, and maybe he's reading the paper, or playing on his phone, doing something. And you walk a little further, and there's a woman walking through the park, and out of nowhere a gang comes and they attack her. And they knock her down and they kick her and they beat her up a little bit and they steal her purse. And so you see this, and you see the policeman, and you go, Hey, hey, look, look over here. Do you see what's happening? And the policeman looks up from his lunch, and he sees what's going on, and he looks back down. He doesn't doesn't lift a finger. He doesn't do anything. How would you feel? Well, that's what the prophet Habakkuk thinks is happening. He's writing in this really, really dark, really sinful period in history, and God's people have violence all around them. Just a little timeline here. About 300 years before God speaks with Habakkuk, God's people had said they wanted kings to rule over them probably a a bad decision. But they were divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom of Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. So for some time period, you read through Scripture, and there's kings in both those areas. It's kind of confusing. And then you read about a lot of other kings in Scripture, and they were not kings over God's people. They were kings over people from a different geographical area. So you read about kings from Egypt, and kings from Assyria, and kings from Babylon, and kings from Persia. And so there's all these kings we read about. At this time that Habakkuk is writing, the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity by Assyria, so there were no more kings there. The only kings over God's people were from the southern kingdom. And if you do the research on the kings, it's kind of sad, very honestly, because they, they, most of them were bad. <laughs> they weren't good and godly leaders. In fact, the northern kingdom never had a good king. This entire history, all theirs were bad. If you read through the Bible, you read through First and Second Kings, you read through 1 and Second Chronicles, it gives the accounts of these guys, and they're, they're horrific. I mean, they almost all read the same. King whoever did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed after the ways of his father. He led God's people away from God. All these things, they worshiped idols. They didn't lead people towards faith and repentance. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah actually had some good kings. They had a couple really, really good kings. Hezekiah, who was king in Judah, When the northern kingdom was taken into captivity, he was a great king. But after him, again, there were bad kings. And at that time, God's people wandered so far away from God that they actually got rid of his word. They lost what had been written of the scriptures up to that point in time. And they were desperately wicked. And then after that, there was one last good king before the southern kingdom was overtaken by the Babylonians. That was King Josiah. He ruled from 639 B.C. to 608 B.C. And during that time that he reigned, they found God's word again. And Josiah read it, and he fell in love with God. It it, it just convicted him of sin. He he loved the Lord. And he was so passionate about it, and his hunger was so great, that there was restoration in the land. The people followed him. He led well. There was revival among God's people. Then Josiah died in 608 B.C., and his son Jehoahaz became king. And he was bad. And he only reigned three months And then Pharaoh Necho, who was king of Egypt, came in, and he got rid of Jehoahaz. He wasn't bad enough. And he put Jehoahaz's brother Jehoiakim in charge. And he was really bad. He was wicked. And so this is the time that Habakkuk is writing. There's moral decay and violence and greed and injustice and fighting and all these things. And you say, well, that kind of sounds like today. And I think you're right. I think sometimes we sit and think, gosh, we live just in the worst time. This is the most godless time ever in the entirety of history. And I'm not sure that's true. I think it's just that we have the internet now. People have been doing horrible, lewd, sinful things since sin entered the world. We just hear about it faster now. So Habakkuk is writing during this time of national corruption, and he feels angry, like we would be with a policeman who ignored that lady getting beat up, ignored the violence that takes place right in front of him. Now Habakkuk, for his part, he chooses to ignore the part that God's people had in this. He doesn't focus at all on the fact that God's people were acting so desperately wicked, that they'd wandered so far from the faith, that they wouldn't listen to the prophets who'd come to warn them of the consequences. Instead, he just focuses on the effects of sin. And he's agonizing because they're rampant. He says he sees iniquity all around him, but I think mostly he's just angry because God appears to be doing nothing. And he's thinking, that's God's job. Habakkuk is saying God's the policeman who's supposed to be enforcing the law, but he's just ignoring it. So Habakkuk has these questions for God, and that's the very first one. How long? How long do I have to yell to you to come and do something before you show up? And I think the root of his question is, are you even listening, Lord? I see violence everywhere. There's crime, there's murder, there's rape, people are being harmed. The bad guys are winning here, Lord. And you could swoop in and do some kind of superhero thing, and you don't even show up. And then he asks a really personal question. He says, why do you make me look at it? And I get this. Over the last couple weeks, I really get this. Because I've gotten, like, queasy, like physically ill. I've been reading stories on the Internet of just how far gone we are in our society. And it's sad. And, And I don't have any skin in the game. I'm not... Involved in these stories, I'm just reading about them. I read a story a couple weeks ago about a hate crime. There's a 13-year-old boy in the Kansas City area. He was walking home from school, and two 16-year-old boys followed, chased him, caught him on his porch, and they poured gasoline on him and set him on fire and said he deserved it. It's a hate crime because of who he was. <laughs> you see this stuff, and it makes you sick. You're a good God and I'm a sinner and I can't stand to see this stuff that's going on around me. How in the world can you tolerate it? Have you ever asked that one? I can barely stand this God. How can you endure it? That's the kind of question that Habakkuk is asking. And one of the solutions we come up with here on earth is, man, I'm just going to get as far away from it as I can. I got to get away from this wickedness. And so we withdraw. And we don't want to look on sin, so we go far, far away. And apparently we forget that If we have mirrors in our house, we can see sin every day. Don't have to look that far. There's something that makes people who are Christ followers become disobedient to commands that God gives us in Scripture. We want to withdraw. And if we do that, how are we going to share the gospel? How are we going to be his witnesses? How are we going to be a bright light in a dark place? If you ask my kids if they know memory verses, I know they know one because we use this one at home all the time. Passage from Philippians chapter 2. Read verse 2 to 12. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church in Philippi, he says this, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a great Greek word, that word for work. It means cultivate. Get in and dig at it. He says, do that, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, how would I do that, James? How do I cultivate He explains, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach, where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. How are we supposed to be lights in the world if we're hiding from it? Jesus prays for his 12 disciples and he explains this notion of being sent, of living by faith for God's glory in front of people in John chapter 17, verse 14 to 18. He's talking to God about the disciples. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. But listen, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I don't want them to to go hide. He says, just keep them from the evil one. How would we do that? They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world, so sanctify them in the truth. Your word is is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. But the world looks horrible, and there are people who say, oh, it's just too much. i got to run far, far away. The world is so full of wickedness, I'm just going to disengage. I'm going to quit reading the internet. I'm going to quit watching the news. I'm going to go live on a farm somewhere. When Jesus comes back, you'll have to go find me. If we do that, how are we being obedient? I mean, that's not living by faith. Jump back to the text. This is what Habakkuk is dealing with. It's what we're dealing with today. Things are bad all around us. Verse 3 is more of the same. Not only are the people bad, not only are the people perverted and wicked, but the system's falling down all around us. Culture's messed up. Families are messed up. Laws are messed up. Same as now. Today, if you come out and support a marriage as the Bible defines it, people say you're closed-minded. If you come out in favor of not murdering children, People call you a religious zealot. Leadership is messed up. It was then. It is now. This is a true story I read about. It didn't happen here in this area, but it happened in our country this past school year. It involved hazing, initiation ceremonies, for kids to be involved in high school sports. And these kids were doing these horrific hazing rituals. They're so bad, I can't can't talk about them in here. They're that disgusting. One of the kids who had this hazing done to him His dad was the principal of the school, and one of the kids who did the hazing, his dad was one of the coaches there at the school. Well, the whole thing came to light, and the school board fired the principal and kept the coach, because there's such huge civic pride associated with the success of the sports programs. See, things are bent. (laughs) Things are broken. There's injustice all around, and we hear about it, and it makes us sick, and that's what Habakkuk's saying. I've had enough, God. Why don't you do something? That's what we see in verses 2 to 4. Habakkuk thinks God is the lazy policeman. So he hits God with this first round of his questions. And and listen, it's okay. That's what we see. It's okay to question God. What we don't want to do is accuse God. Because if we accuse God, it's like we assume we know better or we could do better. But but God answers. It's okay to question. Here's how God responds, starting in verse 5. He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, he says, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. As adults, do we believe everything we're told? You hear the story about the seven-year-old boy who went to Sunday school class, and the teacher was teaching, and they were teaching about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And, and so he goes home, and his parents go, hey, what did you learn about in Sunday school today? And he's like, "Ah, oh, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And they're like, oh, tell us, tell us what it was about. It's like, oh, you know, you know, Joshua was like a military commander, and he had this like, you know, elite team and Navy SEALs and stuff, and they marched around, and they planted these explosives, and they had detonators, and they had like, some tanks, and then there were some fighter jets that came in, and then like, somebody blew a trumpet, and they like, pushed all the you know, detonators, and the wall came crumbling down. It was like that. <laughs> his parents were looking at him. You know? They're like, is that what they taught you in Sunday school today? And the kid kind of drops his head. He's like, no, but if I told you what they said, you'd never believe it. Kids grasp stuff that we have a hard time believing because we're so smart. Here in Habakkuk, God says, I want you to really look around and observe what's going on and what will go on because you've already made a lot of observations, and they may not be as accurate as you think. God says, you've observed, and you think I'm not doing anything. You think I'm the lazy policeman, and we're going to see that's really not accurate. And in verse 5, I think there's two intended meanings. And the first one is just so literal. This next thing I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to do now, it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> it will astonish you what I'm about to do. You won't believe it. But then I think the second part of it is I think it's a little dig. I think it's just a little jab. Because the prophets had been talking about the need for repentance and faith. God himself had already stated the fact that he'd use unusual means to bring about his will. And God's people had chosen not to believe, or they just clearly ignored the warnings. In 2 Kings chapter 21, neat passage, starts in verse 7. God says this, Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made. And this is Manasseh. This is one of the bad kings. He'd made an idol to worship, and he put it in the temple, in the house of which the Lord said to David and his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if, there's a little condition in here, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So Manasseh, who was king like 50 to 100 years before King Josiah, he got God's people to move away from God. He got them to act disobediently. So here's what God said he would do about it. Continue in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 10. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, "'Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, "'having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, "'and has also made Judah sin with his idols, "'therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel,' Behold, I'm bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I'll stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Is that not clear? That seems pretty clear to me. God himself is speaking. God has spoken through the prophets, and he's saying, please, 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 please don't follow worthless leaders. But they still do. And now we can question why those leaders rose to power in the first place. What's God up to with that? I understand that. But he's saying, don't follow them when they worship idols. Don't follow them when they try to lead you away from me because there will be consequences. Scripture says we have to obey the government, Romans 13. We have to obey our leaders when they say to pay taxes. We have to obey our leaders when they say to observe the speed limit. I totally get that. But when they lead us towards depravity, we don't have to follow. Even if it lands us in prison, we don't want to follow people who are leading us away from God's commands. And here in 2 Kings, God's people follow Manasseh. And God says, I'm going to bring such calamity. I'll wipe them away like I wipe crumbs off a plate. And I think this is worth a little pause because we need to wrap our minds around the problem of sin and the methods that God uses to deal with sin because he's getting ready to do something pretty creative here. But it's not the first time. Nor will it be the last time that God shows he's in control by doing something or using something evil or wicked to accomplish something good. God can use good things to accomplish good. We know that. But he's sovereign. And he can use things we see as bad to accomplish good. One of the bad kings of Israel was Jeroboam II. He reigned for about 40 years in a period about 200 or so years before Habakkuk. And he didn't lead God's people well. (laughs) But the Bible records something really interesting about him in 2 Kings 14. Under his reign, he restored the border in Israel. And that's important because under the last several bad kings before him, Israel had been almost constantly under attack from its enemies. But the Bible says here, because he saw this problem that his people were having, they didn't have any allies to come in and fight for them. So God used Jeroboam II to rebuild and fortify the walls and the borders of Israel. Well, you hear something like that and you say, well, sure, that's God just being God. You know, before we write that off, we just have to think, at the time that happened, just like in the time of Habakkuk, God's people were just in full-out rebellion against God. They were wicked. They they had sinful and wicked leaders, and they had become sinful and wicked people. They were ignoring the prophets. They were killing the prophets that God was sending. They didn't ask for the borders to be fortified. They didn't ask to be rescued, but God did it anyway. And he did it through a very unlikely source, this wicked king. And, you know, you hear it, and we're probably okay with it because God did a good thing. Now, we like it better when God uses faithful and obedient people to do the cool stuff in the Bible. We like that Moses delivered the Israelites from Egypt because he was mostly good. He only killed that one guy. We like that David conquered the Philistines, you know, because he only committed adultery and had that one guy killed. We like it when reasonably good guys win because that's who we identify with. We have that problem, and Habakkuk, had that problem where we forget where the mirrors are. We aren't as bad as those people, so we must be pretty good. So why did God use Jeroboam second to rebuild the borders? I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know, but he did. And we can learn from it. Sometimes God uses truly bad things to make good things happen. But he's sovereign. He's in control. And so sometimes he can use bad things to make something look Even worse. And he's still sovereign. It's a great verse in Scripture Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. Make that one a memory verse. And it's not a cop out verse. It says God's ways are higher than our ways. As Ryan talked about earlier, his ways are better than our ways. We shouldn't accuse God. Here in Habakkuk, what he's getting ready to do is allow the most wicked, vile people on the face of the planet to run over slightly less wicked and vile people. God can use bad people or situations to accomplish his plan. He's done it throughout history. You read in the book of Genesis, he used the deceitfulness. He used the treachery. He used the sin of Joseph's brothers. I mean, they were going to kill him. They sold him into slavery. God used that so Joseph could rise to power in Egypt and millions of people could be saved during the famine. Were Joseph's brothers good guys? no. Joseph tells us that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He talks to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. People didn't die to preserve many people alive. God is able to use things we see as bad for good, even if we don't get it. (laughs) That's what living by faith means. God used the captivity of his people by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to allow Daniel to become an advisor to the king and spread God's message throughout the nation. That's creative. Now, we look at that story, and it's great, but then you have to think, did Daniel suffer? Did Daniel's friends suffer? Did God's people suffer? Yes, they did. God used King Cyrus. He's the king of Persia, easily one of the most ruthless kings ever. What did he do? He initiated and helped fund the rebuilding of the walls in the temple in Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. King Cyrus was a fundraiser for God. It's hard. It's hard to wrap our minds around because the effects of sin are real. The wickedness and the injustice and the evil that we clearly see in the world hurts people. When the Babylonians are going to come through, people are going to die. When someone's hurting because evil actions have caused them pain, we we shouldn't just go and try and explain it away. You don't go to the, the woman whose son was set on fire on her porch and go, it's okay, God has a plan. It's not helpful. But here's the deal. We don't want to just pretend it didn't happen. So how do we engage? How do we become a bright light in a dark place? Scripture tells us this in Romans chapter 12, and verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Celebrate with folks who see what God's doing and weep with those who don't, but what if God puts you in that spot? What if you had a relationship with that mom in Kansas City, and you allow her time to grieve? I don't know how much time it is. You allow her time to weep, and at some point in time, she asked that question, why would God allow something like this? And what if you're able to point her to the book of Habakkuk? to the story of Joseph, to the story of Daniel, to tons of stories in the Bible, and and show where God is in control. That's a way to live by faith. That's a way to engage. We have a clear promise and lots of precedent from the Bible that God is bigger and that he is still in control, and he can actually take what we see around us as bad and redeem it somehow for good in a way that we never would have expected or imagined. That makes me even more in awe of God, very honestly. See, come back to the text. Clearly, no one believed what what God was saying to his people through the prophets about the need for repentance and faith. So he outlines his plan here in verses 6 to 11. His people, the Judeans, have been disobedient. They've acted wickedly, so they certainly deserve consequences. Here's how God's going to do it, starting in verse 6. Tells Habakkuk, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward, They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. Rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they'll sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. This sounds bad, right? And it was. As horrible a judgment for sin as you can imagine, that's the Babylonians. The text says the Chaldeans, same people, different name. And let me help, just put this in a context maybe that we can grasp a little bit. It'd look like this. We're here in the United States and we look around at the debauchery. We look around at the violence. We look around at the injustice and we pray for God to help, to deliver us in some way. Please do something. And we say, we know we have a part in this, God. We know we've turned from your ways, but we need you to fix this. And God says, okay. And we say, hooray. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'll send Osama bin Laden to become the next president. I know he's dead. I know there'd be citizenship issues, but work with me on this. What, what if God says that? Hey, hey, we deserve consequences for our disobedience, for our sin. We're asking for deliverance. And God says, okay, I'll send Saddam Hussein. I'll send someone who will imprison all the Christians. I'll send someone who will establish a dictatorship. What would we think? I thought about this in church Was a church example. What if you were in a church, I pray it's not this one, and you were being just spiritually abused by your pastor? What if your pastor was a horrible shepherd, didn't care for people at all, and you prayed to God, God, please fix this. And God says, it's okay, I got it, I'm on it, I'm going to send in a false teacher. And we're left going, really? (laughs) That's the best answer? Habakkuk has said, I'm sick of what's going on. And God says, I'm sick of it too. And Habakkuk says, I need you to do something. And God says, I'm on it. Here it comes. Boom. The Babylonians. God's people had been ignoring God. They'd become a law unto themselves. They were doing whatever they pleased. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, said, well, you like that sort of thing? Here it is to the nth degree. This to me is like God when... The people were wandering in the desert. During the exodus from Egypt, God had been graciously providing manna for them to eat, and they grumble, and they complain, we want meat. God says, you want meat? (laughs) And so he piles up quail. That story in Numbers 11, he piles up quail like three feet high everywhere, like a day's walk on both sides of the camp. He's like, you wanted some meat, here it is. And it's so much meat, they get sick. God's like, you want meat? Here's some meat. God says, you want to do what you please? Let me introduce you to somebody who's really good at that. If the Babylonians wanted your house, they'd kill you and take it. If someone in your family complained, they'd kill them. If you had a neighbor who protested and said, well, that doesn't look right, and they went to the court, they'd kill your neighbor. (laughs) And then they'd kill the attorney. And then they'd kill the judge. These are bad, bad people. If they wanted your wife, they killed you and took her. And you say, hey, aren't there laws against that? Well, here's the deal. Law only has jurisdiction if it can be enforced. If it doesn't, there's no law. And the Babylonians had become their own law. That's what verse 7 says. Their authority originated with themselves. God just keeps going. He's piling on here because I think he really wants to make sure the Judeans get it. Maybe they're saying, oh, the Babylonians are coming. We'll just run for our lives. No, you won't. Their horses are fast. They come in bent on violence, and they will kill you. I love the picture. It says they fly like an eagle to devour you. And I get this picture. Have you ever seen like a fish or a a small rodent trying to negotiate with an eagle? Oh, no, no, seriously, I can get you lots of fish. Ah!" There's no talk of surrender. There's no talk of payment. They come in, and they kill you. Maybe the Judeans are thinking, well, they, they certainly can't get all of us. There's strength in numbers. Some of us will make it out. We'll survive. Nope. Look at the end of verse 9. They gather captives like sand. They capture everyone. That's what they do. They're bad people. Verse 10 exposes where we get this false sense of security. Well, nothing too bad can happen because we have kings, and we have fortresses, whatever. We have military and police and, and we're safe. And then something devastating happens. Verse 10 to me indicates we shouldn't put confidence in any fortress but our god building a wall around your city used to be the ultimate in defense and here's what god says is going to happen they're going to come through and just knock everything down and then they're going to pile that rubble up outside your wall crawl in and kill you and the thing that you thought was going to be your defense that's going to be your death chamber you won't be able to get out this is how bad these guys are i think what god is pointing to in habakkuk is don't trust in your walls Don't put your confidence in your own strength. Don't put your confidence in your numbers. Trust in God. Judeans had a hard time seeing that. Can we trust in people? We have kings. We have rulers. We have leaders. Can't we trust in them? No. The text says even the lowliest of Babylonians will laugh at your king because they know your king is as good as dead. So what power will he have? God says all this will happen, and then the Babylonians will move on, but they will be held guilty because God is a God of justice. Justice is God's plan in this, although that certainly has to be hard to see. Habakkuk calls out to God, and he says, I'm sick of the world around me. It's so sinful. It's so wicked. Do something, God. And God says, I'll do something. I'm sick of it, too. I'll do something. How about some justice? How about my people face the consequences of sin? Do we like that answer? Do we really want justice in our lives? had a dear, dear friend, Maurice Meadows. Maurice passed away about a year ago. But, but if you ever knew Maurice, he's just one of the greatest storytellers of all time. I remember being in a small group one time with Maurice, and he was telling this story about something that had happened at a workplace, and, and he felt kind of like he got jobbed a little bit. He didn't get something, a promotion that he, he thought he'd earned. And so he went to go talk to his foreman, and he sat down and talked with him and, and explained the whole situation. And the foreman goes, well, what is it you want? And Maurice goes, I just want what I deserve. Oh, no, no, wait, I don't want that. <laughs> Do we get to that spot where we understand as Christ followers we don't want what we deserve? Scripture says the wages of sin is death. I think we really don't want justice. We just want God to come in and fix things so that everyone around us thinks like us. It's all sunshine and rainbows and lollipops and we're all comfortable. And, and seriously, <laughs> the book of Habakkuk has been kicking me because I've become so aware of this. I'm sure in my own life, that I don't want the Babylonians to come through. I don't want them to sweep through as a tool to deal with my sin because I already know that I'm guilty. There's so many areas in my life where I resist God, where I become wise in my own eyes. And I know I do what pleases me and not what pleases him. We'll see in the text next week, Habakkuk doesn't like God's idea of justice. No kidding. Because he's working under the assumption that the Judeans are the good guys. When it comes to dealing with our sinful condition, here's the truth. There's only one good guy. His name is Jesus Christ. God deals with sin and its effects here in Habakkuk chapter 1. Was he being evil? No. The Babylonians are a bad bunch of people. They've been waiting to attack. That's what they do. See, Habakkuk was wrong in thinking that God isn't doing anything. God's been sending the prophets for a long time. God's been holding the Babylonians back with his mighty hand. He's been at work. He sent the prophets for years and they've been crying and begging for God's people to repent and turn to faith. He's been patient. God has spoken through the prophets and the message was, stop it. You're destroying the nation around you. Quit sinning. Trust me. Have faith that I have a perfect plan for you. And here's the deal. God still cries out today to his people. He doesn't use prophets. We have his word. We have his word, and he cries out to us. He uses people who will preach and teach. The message is still the same. Stop sinning. Quit turning away from the one true God to follow after lesser gods or idols. I think our world today looks a lot, I mean a lot like it did in Habakkuk's day, except for the internet. are A lot of times we sit and we pray, Jesus, just come back today. Let's get this over with. Why why is there such horrible violence and wicked injustice, and, and we're just sick of it? And I think when we say that, we don't see the big picture. I was at a conference earlier this year, and Andy Stanley spoke, and he said something that really impacted me. He challenged everyone who was there, and it was pastors and ministry leaders, and he said this. He said, the most important contribution you may ever make to society, to this world, may not be something that you do. It may be someone that you raise up. I, I thought right away, well, maybe he's talking about, you know, somebody you share the gospel with and God saves them. But, but I, I prayed on it and I thought on it. And, I, and it's kind of why we're doing this series on discipleship. Maybe my most important contribution isn't me at all. It's somebody that I pour into and raise up for God. And then I thought beyond that, and this was convicting Maybe it's even clearer than that. Maybe it's my kids. Maybe it's Gavin and Carson and Macy and Trace. We get to that spot where we say, the world is just so wicked, God, just wipe it out. And of course, we don't really want Him to wipe it out. We just want Him to wipe out the more wicked people, the people who aren't like us. We want to keep the less wicked people because they're the good guys. Every time I think that, I think God is saying, hold on just a minute. There's still a bunch of people I want to save down there. There's still a bunch of people to raise up. I love that passage in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul's ministering in Corinth. That was another desperately wicked place in Scripture. People would like to have seen it wiped off the face of the planet. God says this to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. For I'm with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And so Paul settled there for 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. How many people did God have in the city when he spoke to Paul? I want to say probably zero. He needed Paul to engage for 18 months so that people would have the opportunity to respond. But that place was so wicked, it should have just been wiped off the face of the planet. God is patient and just. I thought so many times this week about stupid things I've done in my life that could have killed me. If you guys know me, you've been around here for a while, I'm an alcoholic. There's so many times I just did horrible, stupid things, and a just God would have had every right to wipe me off the face of the earth like crumbs off a plate, but he didn't. And there must have been some reason that he left me. And I think it involves my wife and my kids. And I think it involves standing up here today and teaching this message. That's why he didn't kill me when I was doing something stupid when I was in my 20s. We look at the book of Habakkuk and we have questions. Habakkuk looked at the world around him and certainly he had questions. And one of the biggies is, where's the justice, God? I'm sick of this world. It's a horribly wicked place. Aren't you going to do something about it? And in Habakkuk's day, he sent the Babylonians. That was the method of justice that God chose to use. And they were going to face justice too. We'll hear more about that next week. See, but here's the deal. We know more. We have the whole book. We have all of God's love letter to us. So we can know more of God's plan than Habakkuk did. See, we know that God looked at our horrible conditions Here on planet Earth. And he not only got so sick of it, he got so sick that he showed up personally. He sent his son to become a man and engage. And so Jesus came and he didn't withdraw, he waded in to the mess that is our lives. Jesus came to live in this world, to be tempted in every way and yet not sin. And he got persecuted and he got beaten and he was betrayed and he was lied to by those closest to him, and then he was scourged, and then he was crucified. All so that he could accomplish the plan that God has for his people. See, we needed justice. So God sent Jesus to the cross. The just for the unjust. So that Jesus could conquer sin and death and establish a true kingdom with a good king. No more wicked kings. One true king a place where we can live by faith when we place our trust in him and then we get to spend eternity in a place where we don't have to worry about the effects of sin. God explains this so clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In our day, God has made a way for us to be right, to be righteous. And it's no different than how it was in Habakkuk's day. It's by faith. It's by faith in God through Christ. And so we need to figure out where we stand on this one today. Because you've probably heard this before. You've probably heard that message that God sent Jesus for us in our place. You might have some head knowledge about what God has done. But the question is, have you ever accepted it? Do we live by faith? There's a big difference between information and transformation. Some of us have a lot of information, but until we live by faith, until that faith impacts our decision-making, until it impacts our, our walking around living, until it impacts our habits, our budgets, our tongues, then we lack transformation. And God desires transformation for us. That's my prayer. He's transforming me through this book. I pray that he continues to transform us and draw him closer. Draw us closer to him as we walk through the book of Habakkuk. Because by the end, I want us to be able to say and show that we live by faith. Let me pray. Oh, Father God, you're so good and so big, so much bigger than I can grasp. God, you work all things together for good. Your word is so clear. Help us to trust in you. Help us to put our faith in you. God, help us to live lives that show that we belong to you so we can be a bright light in what truly, Lord, is a dark world. God, we want to follow so hard after you. I pray that as we engage in this book, I pray we're all challenged. (laughs) It hurts, but I thank you for challenging me with this book. God, we give this day to you, our worship. Help us to leave following harder, just a little more in love with you. God, we just ask all those things in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Falling on my knees in worship, giving all I am to seek your face, Lord, all I